Well, we'll. Uh, oh, I do want to apologize for the. Uh, I got in late last night, and uh, so we didn't get a chance to get the the uh, PowerPoint out uh, and the class. But we will send that out uh, today, and so I'll, I'll get that to Stacy. Um, all right. Well, well, that said. I did want to throw this out. I thought it was interesting. I came across this. I thought it was kind of cute. Uh, there was a uh, church in England that they were rebuilding their building, and they wanted to put some gargoyles in. Uh, we were in the uh, we were in the Denver airport uh, on Saturday morning, and they, what they did a gargoyle is supposed to protect against kind of evil spirits, kind of thing. And I guess they had enough snafus in the Denver airport. And if you go to the luggage baggage area in the Denver airport. There are two gargoyles up there, bronze gargoyles sitting in a suitcase. And, and it's their job to look over the luggage, uh, make sure that it doesn't get lost. Um, but there was a church that was rebuilding. Their church, they wanted to put some gargoyles in, in it. They thought that they would have somebody represent the parishioners in this church uh, and have a gargoyle made of that parishioner. Okay, And so they chose this gal who's like 89 years old. She's been at this church forever and ever and ever, and everybody loves her. Uh, so she got her own gargoyle on the church. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cute. <laughs> so, so for the rest of her life, for her ancestors, they've got... She, she's on the church. Yeah, Grandma's on the church. Ah, that was good. All right. Uh, as we get started today, I want to uh, want to lead into this just a little bit differently. Um, I need uh, this is going to be one of those moments. I try not to do this too much, but uh, I need to have three people hit three different scriptures, and then we're going to tie them all together. Okay. I need somebody to grab First Nephi eighteen nine, and somebody to grab Ether six five, and then someone get DNC. 109.37. Okay, who's got first Nephi 18 now? Six? Okay. And after we have been driven forth from the land for the space of many days, behold, my brother and the sons of Ishmael, and also their wives, began to make themselves married. And so much that they began to Okay, that's probably that's good enough. So, re- read the first couple of lines again. Okay, so, so how did how did the Nephites get across the ocean? Pushed by the wind. There was a wind that was constantly pushing them, getting them where they needed to be. Okay, all right. Who's got Ether six five? Okay. Okay, so how did the Jaredites get across? Mighty wind. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, if you look at, if you start looking at the word wind, wind in the in the Old Testament and certainly throughout the Scriptures, wind always has carries a couple of meanings, and and especially when you start looking at the Hebrew word for wind, 
is a lot of times translated as ruach. It is, it is kind of the breath of God. It is the spirit. That's why the, the, it's the same thing that was brooding on the face of the waters and the creation, this wind coming along. And, and, how did the, and for instance, how did the Jaredites get across? Constant storm for 344 days. Storm at sea. But pushing them. And always it's the wind pushing to get where they need to be. So why would that why would that fit with the idea that sometimes this wind is always seen as kind of an extension of the spirit or the breath of God? You see the connection? Why well, it takes so long to get across because they went halfway around the world. Well, a constant, even with a constant wind pushing them, they've got to stay in the storm at sea. Okay? And they would be seasick for 344 days. <laughs> Without drowning me or... Uh, yeah. Okay? But why? What is there about wind and why would that be spirit? In what? How does the spirit move you? Okay. Have you ever felt the spirit push you and direct you? Um, one way the spirit works with me is I do things that are not part of my personality, but I can't seem to not do them. Oh, okay. It feels like it's my like, personality yeah. would do this, but if the wind is pushing me, <laughs> right. then I'm pushed to do something else. Well. But it's like um, I was at the grocery store and I saw a man with some bags of groceries walking down and I rolled down the window and asked if he needed a ride. I would never give a man I don't know a ride. But I, and at the time I'm thinking, what are you doing? But I could not. So then I gave him a ride and I realized he had milk in the bags and I took him about three or four miles to his home and they would have broken. Oh, okay. But it was out of your character. Right. So this this is one of those times you were being compelled to do something that was kind of against but, your right. nature. Right, but I, I can't. I don't feel like I can stop myself. Um, another case was as a missionary, we went up to a commune to find a member, and we got up onto the hill, and a guy who was a guard because they don't let you up on it stopped us, and he said, "Who are you? Okay, what are you doing here, missionary?" Say, "I am." I said, "Oh, that's why we wear these name tags. They say who we are, and as I'm saying that, I realize you can't read." Oh, that's a song. So that's what I mean. I'm compelled to do something I would never do in that way. Is that, is that a good explanation? That when the Spirit is compelling us and it's pushing us, it's pushing us beyond where we are towards something that we wouldn't probably do if it was up to our nature or our human nature or our natural man-natureness. That's a word. Somehow I was being compelled. I'm being pushed. Okay? How come he has to push us? <laughs> you know, how can, we, how can we somehow have to be shoved sometimes? Yeah, we can get so caught up in, in what's right in front of us that we have to be shoved and compelled. Now, I also believe, and we'll talk about this more another time, there is a point at which um, that I believe something I call divine gravity takes over. 
I think we have to be compelled in a way to get going and get shut. But there's a point when we begin to get closer to the Savior's uh, orbit, closer to His gravitational pull that He pulls us home. But in order to get out of, break out of our little uh, planet of natural manness, we, we sometimes need the Spirit to shove us, to push us, and to make us uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay, bring it. <laughs> but yes. I just I, I think we talked about this a long time ago and I remember at the time I was thinking that I don't all of my experience with the Holy Ghost is not pushing. It's intriguing. It's gentle. It's pricking. It's touching my it's heart. The still small voice that pulls us. Saying that it moves us. Yeah. sailed if you are sailing along with the wind and it's gently moving you does that feel like a shove no you're opening your sails and it's just, you're trying to capture it and it just gently moves you so why would you why would you be pushed you're at rest you're you're either at rest you're not moving <laughs> And that's the moment where it's trying to entreat us. But one of the reasons why we have to be shut is we are pushing back against what we're being led to do. Does that make sense? Okay. Or we're completely at rest. We're not moving at all. Yeah. Well, then either talks about a curious man. Oh, yeah. And sometimes we've got to be taken out of our comfort zone. And that's not always an easy thing, but sometimes a series of events has to occur to say, I've got to change this, or we've got to do this, or the Lord's trying to tell us He doesn't want us here, He wants us over here. Yeah, and, and, and we may not necessarily be listening, or we may be struggling against that, or it's going to we're so comfortable where, we're, where we are, we need a furious wind to literally move us from where we are. Yeah. And yet some people don't do that. No, some, some people are Look, look at President Monson. Do you think President Monson has to get shoved? President Monson, we've talked about this before. President Monson is the guy sitting in his office, and the spirit goes, Office the widow. Okay. Lock the door, and off he goes. It's a gentle entreaty. He doesn't have to be shoved. I think, I think when we have to, the, sometimes the spirit has to push us a little bit harder because we don't. Or it's going to be something that is going to be so outside our comfort zone we have to literally be pushed into something that's going to be really difficult for us. It's going to be really uncomfortable. Okay? Does that make sense? A lot of building barges. Can't we just stay here? It's kind of nice. Or they're in Bountiful and there's lots of fruit and stuff like that. And we really don't want to get on the boat if we don't have to. I think that's a perfect example. But sometimes, for me at least, it's not that. Like, I was already at the comic, but he needed me to do something a little different than I normally would. And direct you a little bit better. To get past the barrier that would be in the way. Okay. Now, 
Does that make sense? So I want you to get the idea behind. Uh, that's why whenever you start looking at wind and the process of wind, we're going to talk about Moses in just a second. Think about what wind does and why the Savior is, and why the scripturally it's so often translated as Spirit, Holy Ghost, Breath of God, and it's intimately tied. And it's, it's interesting. If you'll, if you'll if you get it, when you start running across it, you'll go, oh, and it's going to really teach you something. Okay? All right, now, who's got 109.37? Okay? Now, remember, this is from the dedicatory prayer from last time. Okay. He's, why would he be asking for a, a wind, like a tornado or a hurricane... A rushing, mighty wind to fill the temple. It is the Spirit. And he's, and he's specifically, he's thinking back to what? Pentecost. Okay? Now, remember, that this is a season of rejoicing that's going on in Kirtland. We've dedicated the temple. They started having nightly meetings. There is one point during that week between the dedication of the temple and what we're about to talk about, that Joseph gathered all the brethren together, and they're having this great priesthood meeting. Uh, about 9 o'clock, he, he goes home. He's like, I'm, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm heading home. The brethren stayed, and they had great spiritual experiences all night long. They were just going around the clock. They were being so lifted and so prepared. And now what he's asking for is a rushing, mighty wind to fill the temple. And specifically, he's thinking about the Pentecost that traditionally occurred 50 days after the season of Pentecost. It occurred 50 days, Penta 50, after Passover. And this time it came like three days. It was on Wednesday. A rushing mighty wind. There's about 450 in the temple. Uh, and they get a rushing wind. And they could hear it. They could literally hear it. And the, and the temple was filled with angels. Uh, and people did come running at that point because they could hear something going on in the temple. Uh, and this is where we have literally one, one uh, woman in her journal writes about the fact that they heard heavenly choirs. And a man not far from her stands up and starts singing in an unknown voice, in an unknown language. And she finds herself standing up and singing in harmony in a language that she'd never heard. You think about symbolically what that means, the harmony in, the, in God's language, the unity that comes with that. just had to be like nothing we've ever experienced. And the temple was being filled. Okay? And it comes. But the, the, the image is that it's not just that it started to happen. They talked about many that they, they heard the wind coming. A little bit like those who have talked about tornadoes. You know, it sounds like a freight train coming. They could hear the wind starting to rush into the temple and then all of the spiritual manifestations started. Yeah. It is a forerunner. And that would be a good way to put it. Because it's funny that this, this came a few days before what's about to happen in section 110. Okay? Yeah. 
on the rushing mighty wind do the angels travel on that that's an interesting thing it, it, <laughs> It's kind of that light speed travel thing that you see in, you know, when they're, uh, thank you, that's good. <laughs> okay, so this, is, so this is Pentecost, and Pentecost is happening, and it happened more than once, but specifically there is on Wednesday this incredible experience that everybody journaled about and saw so much, and were filled with so much. Um, Okay, so now let's look at section 110. Let me just say it's interesting, there are those that have, uh, and we're, again, we're talking a little bit more about this in a second, there are those that have researched and found that um, this day, April 3rd, uh, 1836. Uh, we've already said that it was Passover. Uh, it was also Easter. And it was also Sunday. There's only one time in all the 19th century that on Sunday there was Easter and Passover all on the same day. April 3rd, 1836. There's a divine timing to these kind of things. All right. Uh, by the way, they uh, we know this uh, just from the history. We have about 450 in the building. The chapel's full. Uh, they pass the sacrament. They prepare themselves. And then the Lord, and then Joseph wants to then go before the Lord. Uh, those of you who have been in, in Kernan, do, do they have any veils up at all in that lower area at all? Okay. Yes, they really do. They have they're attached to the ceiling. They're connected the up there. Thing that they can lower down. Yeah, and, and that's what they would do. Is that in other words, remember this temp, this building was uh, the MTC, the uh, state center, and and the temple all at the same time. And for it to become the temple, every temple needs a holy of holies. So the veil we're, not, we're talking about is not the veil of the temple as we understand it, separating uh, endowment room from celestial room. This was the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. If this was the temple of Solomon, there would be magnificent, these would be magnificent tapestries, very large, uh, and I, I'm trying to remember, I think they're seraphim, angels that were woven onto these magnificent things and then only the high priest would, you remember would then would then open up that curtain go into the Holy of Holies, close it he's the only one in there at the time and there, there's the Ark of the Covenant and the seraphim above with the, the cherubim wings over the top of the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense it's the only light in the Holy of Holies but that is the Holy of Holies okay uh, it, 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 our celestial room is as close as we get to it, but for instance, in the Salt Lake Temple, uh, we have the celestial room that we're all able to go to, but only the prophet goes into the Holy of Holies. That's where he goes to pray. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before. Anybody been to the Manti Temple? 
Okay? Anybody been to a wedding in the Magi Temple? Anybody been in, to the blue ceiling room in the Magi Temple? Can you tell me about that one? It is beautiful. And they call it the Blue Room uh, because it was the Holy of Holies that was built in the Manti Temple. We don't build a Holy of Holies now in every temple, but there was, while well, the Salt Lake Temple was not yet built, so, for instance, when the Manti Temple was constructed, it was finished before Salt Lake was, then it had that the Holy of Holies was there. So that if the prophet was in Manti, he would have a, he would have a place to pray. Uh, I've been to a, a ceiling in the, in the blue room, uh, and it's the only ceiling room I've ever been in where the the altar is in a blue alcove uh, in the wall. So the blue alcove comes up, the altar is, is right there. That was the altar for the Holy of Holies in the Manti Temple, where the prophet, the high priest, the ultimate high priest, was to be there to pray and receive counsel. That's what this was. When you, when you pulled the veil in here, this became, that upper pulpit in the Kirtland Temple became the Holy of Holies. And this is where they would then go to pray. And this is where, this is where this takes place. Okay? Like, Dallas Temple does not have a Holy of Holies. I don't think. Yeah? Okay, so just to this veil in that temple, you said it was three buildings in one. Yes. Did the veil say, okay, this is the temple, or was the veil okay? The, the veil uh, in, in the bottom part of the curtain temple, what would happen is, is that the curtains generally stayed out of the way. We're going to use this as stake center kind of thing. Now, if this is going to be a holy of holies, what, what they would do is they would then bring the curtains down and it would enclose the upper pulpits on, on, on the Melchizedek end. There's a Melchizedek and Aaronic end. On the Melchizedek end, the curtains would come across. Now this is a place for the prophet to go into and pray, and that becomes the holy of holies. Huh? Where is the temple in the center? This is inside the temple. Okay. So, so what happened? If you look at Solomon's temple, you would have the Holy of Holies, and then the curtain, and then the holy place. And this is where all the priests of Levi, priests operate, and this is where the uh, the uh, uh, menorah was, and the and the incense and everything was all in the the holy place. And then the smaller third of this was the Holy of Holies. Then you'd go outside of that, and then you get the court of the Gentiles. And yeah, and so really what you had in the curtain temple was the ability to say, that curtain comes across, we have the holy place, the temple, <clears throat> we have the Holy of Holies inside, surrounded by this curtain. Okay, good question. So it's important to know that these events happen in the Holy of Holies, of the curtain temple, with the curtains drawn, and only Joseph and Oliver are there. Everybody else is praying for them. They've just taken the sacrament. And isn't it interesting that they go behind a veil? And Joseph's first words in describing this is, "The veil was taken from our minds." Now, by the way, as a side note, when we, when we left the pre-existence and we came to this earth, there was a veil placed across our memory. Where's the veil? 
It's in our minds. Absolutely. If the veil was removed from our minds, what would we see? Everything. We would see them. We would see the spirit world. They're here. Every prophet that's ever written about it says the spirit world is here. They're around us. They're here. And the only thing that separates them from us is the veil in our minds that were placed. Uh, as Truman Madsen put so well, uh, our mortal amnesia is the Lord's anesthesia. Because <laughs> if we were in contact with that, this earth life would become a real burden. Okay, yeah. So that's the curtain that will be drawn back in the second coming. Yeah. Yeah, and symbolically, it's like, when, again, when the Savior was uh, crucified, the, the veil was rent in the temple. He was breaking through this, this veil. So um, the, the veil was taken from our minds. The eyes of our understanding were opened. If we could just, Joseph said, if you could just look into eternity for five seconds, think about what you've learned. So with the second coming, the veil's not completely taken away. Did you still have people who were having to have their mortal experience? When we don't know when this exactly happens, but one of the misconceptions that certainly I had for quite a while is, hey, as soon as we get to the into the we die, we go into the spirit world, we immediately remember the pre-existence. Now it doesn't make any sense because we're still kind of being proven and tested, and, and for all those that have never had that experience, so that's not true. Okay. Um, so that veil is still there until it's time for it to be taken from us. Maybe it's the judgment when it is pulled in. Might be. Might be the judgment. Good. Uh, I just know that in this case, if that veil is removed, we now understand. We now see. We now get it. And those that have been to the other side and come back will say, I knew things there. Now I understood. Now I come back here and I don't re I know that I know something, but I don't Remember what I know. Yeah, that's a pretty good way of describing it. But I was aware that my mind was much more clear and open. Remember when Joseph and Oliver were first being, uh, uh, getting the Aaronic priesthood from uh, John the Baptist? They said to they're suddenly they understood. They, they got it. They, don't, they weren't able to say exactly everything that they got, but that's what happens when the Spirit enlightens us, when the veil is drawn back. By the way, that's why it is, this is, this is Hinckley Speculation 101. I can quote you some, I, I'm a good company though. That is that I believe that we never learn anything the first time in this life. Pre-existently we're preloaded. The full package and understanding and knowledge is there. And what happens when the Spirit, you're sitting in a meeting or something, and the Spirit sends a shaft of light down in there, and what do you do? Ah! It's like, the, the traverse of it goes, and some of this pre-existent knowledge is, is, comes out into our mortalness, and we go, oh, I got it, but it's familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I recognize that I could not get enough of it. 
Yeah, it just has a familiar sound to it. Uh, when we talk about the gathering of Israel, I think that's what we're doing. We're putting this out there. And those that recognize His voice, hear it, because my sheep know my name. My sheep know me. There's a familiar draw. Familiar draw to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I say I can speculate. I try not to speculate too much. I speculate. Cindy will tell you I speculate a lot. And, and one of our common conversations is, oh, that's really good. And Cindy will say, yeah, but you can't teach it. No. No. It's so good, though. <laughs> yeah. So would you say that as the Spirit enlightens us, the veil begins to be drawn away? Yeah. Does that make sense? That as the Spirit enlightens us, it, it begins to thin? And, and, and we, I, I was in the tabernacle with uh, Harold B. Lee at the end of a conference when he said, uh, the, the speakers have been wonderful, uh, the Spirit has been ma- magnificent. He said the veil has been very, very thin. And I believe that had there been more of an effectual struggle on our side, there would have been no veil. Tempting, tantalizing. All right. The eyes of our understanding were open. We saw the Lord standing before the breastwork of the pulpit. Think of that pulpit. But now, suddenly, in this vision, it's covered. It's, it's got gold across the top of it. Why? Because the Savior can't step foot on this earth yet. It's, it's still, it's still celestial. Okay. So he's here, but he's just not walking. Okay. Um, Lord saw the breastwork of uh, the pulpit before us. His feet were a paved work of pure gold, kind of like amber, eyes, flame of fire. You just hear him trying to explain celestial burnings. You know, trying to put how we kind of describe this. Okay? Uh, uh, eyes of pure flame, countenance shown by the brightness of the sun. Voice was the sound of rushing great waters, even the voice of the great Jehovah saying, I am the first and the last. Uh, and I think seven is what they were waiting for. Behold, I have accepted this house, and my name shall be here, and I will manifest to my people in mercy in this house. I, I will appear unto my servants and speak unto them with mine own voice. Uh, and then think about those have, that have maybe been to the temple recently. I love nine. The hearts of thousands and tens of thousands, and we can now say tens of millions, uh, shall greatly rejoice in consequence of the blessings which shall be poured out and the endowment with which my servants have been endowed in this house. And the fame of this house shall be spread to foreign lands. How many people in other lands know the name Kirtland and the Kirtland Temple? Is there a chapel in any foreign land that we could go to, an LDS chapel, where they wouldn't know the name Kirtland Temple? Would they know it in Chile? Would they know it in Japan? Would they know it in Brazil? they know it in Korea? Yeah. The fame of what happened in Kirtland is literally, even though it's not in the world generally, has gone across the world. And the events of Kirtland are known to Latter-day Saints everywhere. I like where it says this is the beginning of the blessing. Yes. The temples we have now and that are continuing to be built. 
And yet Kirtland was the beginning of that. Hang on to that one for just a second, because we're about to talk about, when we talk about dispensations, this day, April 3rd, 1836, I believe is the beginning of a, of a dispensational shift. Okay? And, and we're going to kind of be told that. Okay? And, and oh, so we'll hang on that. Okay, now, so, um, and I do find it interesting that in verse 11 it says, and this vision closed. The other visitations that will come aren't necessarily said as visions, but this visit of the Savior to them is described as a vision. Anybody idea? Any idea why it might be a vision? Because it's the Savior, and couldn't abide in His presence. Exactly. And by the way, I think it also would have been hard, just, just my own thinking, here's the practical side of it. Every time that, uh, when, when Joseph is a young boy at 14, sees the Savior, he's wiped out. <laughs> he's, he dysfunction, you know, he can't function for a while. Okay? They got, they got three more people they need to meet. So I think it comes as a vision. I think the Savior is wrapped in a vision. And then here come these visitations. Now, this vision closed, verse 11, and the heavens were opened unto us, and Moses appeared before us. Now, let, let me stop here. We talked about the fact that this is a unique day in history from a variety of reasons. April 3rd, 1836 is Easter, and so it's Easter Sunday, and Passover. Now, when we talk about Elijah, have you ever sat in on a Passover Seder? We've done that one. Okay. Yeah. We, in fact, we used to do Seders at the with the Weatherford. Uh, what do you do for uh, Elijah? That's right. So that extra place is there. And, and depending on, on which Seder you're using, you might have the door open, or you might have the youngest in the, in the home that come up and at some point symbolically open and shut the door, or you leave a glass of wine for Elijah. Okay. Interestingly enough, Elijah among the Jews is seen as the original wandering Jew. They see Elijah the same way that we see the three Nephites. The, the stories are full of folklore of Elijah showing up as a hooded figure and helping with this piece of property or helping this rabbi do this. And so the, the, the assumption is, is that Elijah is out there. Now, somewhere in antiquity, we don't know where this is, somehow Elijah began to be associated with the Passover, that he might be at the Passover. And in fact, depending, the more orthodox you are, you believe that Elijah is at every Passover celebration. But I searched and searched and could not find the moment where they decided that Elijah should be part of the Passover. It's somewhere in Hebrew lore, somewhere in, in, in the first, second, third century. Up to that point, who's associated with Passover? Who started Passover? Moses, not Elijah. 
So it, it's, we always talk about, isn't it amazing that Elijah was supposed to come on Passover, not according to the scriptures, according to Hebrew lore, that he would show up. So it's more appropriate in my mind, if this is Easter, and this is Passover, and this is the restoration, who should be here? Moses. And it's actually much more appropriate in my mind than Elijah. So you talked in about, maybe someone did, that there were three things that the um, Israelites were supposed to do. And if they didn't do them, they would lose like their land. And their, what were those three things? Not right off. Well, because I'm thinking, I know one of them was preaching the gospel, which mm -hmm. Moses comes back and tells him to do. I know one is temple work. So I'm looking at this, and it looks like it's starting to line up. It kind of lines up. With those three things that they were supposed to do and didn't do. Yeah, yeah. So let, so, so now this responsibility is going to fall to us, and that's kind of where we're going to go. Okay, so let's look at Moses. Moses appeared before us and committed unto us what? The keys of the gathering of Israel and the bringing of the ten tribes, right? Yes. Now, so if you'll if you'll turn, and I've got it, you don't have to turn because I I linked it here. Uh, Moses one. This is Moses conversing with the Lord. And by the way, I, I found this I found this actually on the plane last night. That's kind of cool. In Moses one, these words were spoken spoken unto Moses in the mount, the name of which shall not be known among the children of man. 42. Yeah. I'd never seen that before. Because somebody said, well, it, was this Mount Sinai? Where was Moses when he had this vision with... <clears throat> it's not, it's not going to be known. And we shall not be known among the children of men. Now they're spoken unto you. Show them not to anybody except those that believe. But the children of men are not going to know what Mount this was where he had his, this conversation. Is it just a temple? Just a mountain? A mountain, a mountain. For him, this was a temple. He was having this experience... Remember with the Savior, and he's being shown everything, and he's going, wow, now I know man is nothing. Wow. But I want you to listen to this divine charge that's given unto him. Calling upon the name of God, he beheld his glory, he heard a voice, blessed art thou Moses, for I almighty have chosen thee, and thou shalt be made stronger than many waters, for they shall command thy, they obey thy command as if thou wert God. Okay, let me let me stop for a second. This is a this is a reminder here. Remember they get up against the Red Sea. And what happens? They part. How did they part? He hit. And how did the waters part? Yes. It was the wind that blows through and parts this. That's why I think it's kind of funny in Ten Commandments and others. It's like it parts. And they're kind of calmly walking through in, in between the waters. And I know they're kind of sitting there like jello. Because that, that was how that was how it was. Cecil B. DeMille filmed it. It was those jello. No mud. 
Yeah, there was no mud, and no fishes, or anything like that, and there's no wind, and their hair is perfectly in place, and the makeup is still right where it needs to be. How are you, Joseph? I'm fine. Oh, let's hurry. Yes, Egypt's there. Yes, they're coming. Okay. And they're just marching along. This is a rushing, mighty wind. They're walking through the Red Sea, being driven by the wind. They're in a windstorm. They're being compelled by the Holy Ghost. Get out of, get out of there. Get out of Egypt. Get out of. Listen to the term the Lord uses. Lo, twenty-six. I am with thee even to the end of thy days, for thou shalt deliver my people from bondage. Okay. Now look at the imagery. I'm going to part the things that are in front of you. This looks like it's an insurmountable task. My rushing, mighty wind that will fill the temple and will fill your life will part this impossibility. And then what do you need to do? Move. Move. Go. Because there are those forces on the other side that would tear you apart. Let me move things for you and then move. Make a phone call. Go deliver something. Go talk to this person. Go fulfill. Go rescue. Move. And sometimes we have to be compelled by the Spirit to go do that. But if, and, and by the way, and if you don't, then what? There are those forces behind you that are waiting to destroy. You see the imagery? Powerful. Move. Hurry. Now, this is a key then. Let, let, let's come back here for a second. Yes. This, this vision closed. Heavens were opened up. Moses appeared unto us in the keys of the gathering Israel uh, from the four parts of the earth and leading of the ten tribes from the land of the north. Now, so the keys reside where? These keys that were given from Moses reside where? Prophet, who is them? What has he done with those keys? Delegated them out to. We'll talk about delegation in just a second. But it's out to the twelve, who then delegated it out to the seventy, who then to stakes and wards and quorums and relief societies. So, who is under responsibility to act on the keys? given by Moses. Us. In other words, you are to be a Moses. You are a Moses. You are a recipient and responsible for and a, and a participating part of these keys. And what is your job as a Moses? Again, look at the term that the Lord uses. 
What's your job? Verse 26. To deliver what? The children out of... But specifically those children of Israel that are out there, it's our job to take them from bondage and lead them to the promised land. Now, let's remind ourselves. This is Passover, right? Okay? How did he do that? How did Moses, if we're going to be a Moses, we better figure out how to do this, right? So how did, how did, how did Moses get the children of Israel out of spiritual and physical Egypt? How did, how did Passover work? They would take the blood of the lamb and put it on the lentils of the door and then you're supposed to stay inside that place. Now it becomes a holy place, right? Stand in that holy place. Don't be moved. Stop and stand still. Talk about that. I'm supposed to be in there. The blood of the, the lamb is on my door frame. Then what happens? What, what is happening while they are hunkered down eating the Paschal Lamb? Destroying angel comes and destroys what? The firstborn. So by virtue of the shedding of the blood of the firstborn, those that have the blood on the door frame were then able to then, there was a releasing up from Pharaoh, who, who then let them go, and they made their escape out of bondage. Okay? Now, how do we do that spiritually? It starts with the death of a firstborn, right? And the atonement. So where, so do we have, do we have his blood on our door frame? Which door frame? Broken heart, contrite spirit. We're supposed to write the law on our inner parts. That door frame is our heart. So we take that blood, the death of the firstborn, we put it on our, and that then releases us from the bondage that we're under. Not just making bricks without straw. But we're being brought out of spiritual bondage. Now here's the fascinating part. You're Moses. How are you going to do that? And who are you doing it with? First of all, our families. It's our job as a Moses if, if you, to, to lead our families out of Egypt by making sure that the blood of the Lamb is on their doorposts. And to lead them in power. And a rushing, mighty wind that will lead you to sin. So we try and put our youth and we try and put people that we know and those that we love and, and ourselves, we try and put us in a place where the wind can guide us and move us out of Egypt towards the promised land. We're Moses. That old Dondi? Was it for Moses? Say that again. Every time that we're taking the sacrament, it's like reapplying it. It's like Passover. We're eating the Passover meal. 
in remembrance of the great supper of the Lamb that is coming, but also as part of the process is, is we're taking this sacrament to kind of reapply, to strengthen us for the week. That's why, again, and I've said this before, I just think it's fascinating those that say, well, I'm spiritual, I just don't want to be religious. <laughs> I, just, I just don't need to be there with hypocrites. Uh, and I can find God easier around the lake and the mountain than I can find it. You're, you're missing out. This is where we reapply. This is how we help lead one another. And I just think it's a it's a thing of beauty, you know, to go from from my my ward, the things that I do on a regular basis, and I I spent the uh, I spent the weekend in. Colorado and spoke to a Relief Society group in South Parker State, south of Denver. Gospel was the same. And we understood the spirit together. Go to church in the, uh, the Boulder Ward. Guess what? Gospel is the same. I look over, there's a man in the in the in the uh, in my uh, high priest group there, and I look at him and I think. Kind of know him from somewhere. That's kind of weird. Maybe it's like he looks like a movie star or something. Like that. And he comes up after and he goes, "Did you go on a mission?" And I said, "Yeah." Where? In England, Manchester. It's me. It's Uncle Davis. <laughs> oh my gosh! Thirty-five years since I've seen this guy. And we were in the same district together. There he is. And, and he's still a brother in the Lord. But we're part of the same work. Wherever we go, just doesn't matter. We're still trying to gather Israel no matter where we go. Under the same spirit, with the same counsel, and the same direction that he's a Moses there in Boulder, saying, I need to be here to our family and those that we love. Incredible. Amazing deal. By the way, and I've said this before, but let me just remind for maybe that haven't heard. Um, we, we talked before about, about the fact that if you go into the uh, go into the temple and you go to the baptismal font, what do you find underneath the baptismal font? Twelve oxen. We talked about the fact that we looked at that and we say those twelve oxen represent. Uh, generally, we think of them as the twelve tribes. And, I, and it certainly works under that thing. But, but we've talked about the fact that Wilford Woodruff, in describing that, said, Those, uh, the ox is the symbol of Ephraim. And that in essence, as purists, those twelve oxen represent one tribe. Ephraim. Charged to do what? Go to the four corners of the earth and gather in Israel. And that's when we speak with a familiar spirit. That's when we start saying something, and though, and they hear it, and they go, I, I've never heard this, but it's familiar. I recognize it. I know this stuff. And it's our job to just present it and let Israel find the drama. And the rushing mighty wind takes over and compels them, one of a city, one of a family, two of a city. Isn't that cool? All right. Anything more on Moses? 
Okay, you're going to go back. If you go to the book, uh, the only place that I know that the, I don't know where the original quote is, but if you'll go to uh, Matthew Brown's book called uh, Symbols in Stone, and he talks about, which by the way, uh, Brother Brown uh, passed away a couple of years ago. But his book, uh, Symbols in Stone, uh, goes through the symbolism of the Curtain Temple, the Nauvoo Temple, Salt Lake Temple, and it's a magnificent book. And he'll show you, even, even all the, the artwork in the Kirtland Temple will tell you where that came from and, and where that was used and why they used that symbolism. Symbols in stone. Beautiful. And in there, in talking about the, the baptismal font, he's quoting Wilfred Woodruff from Kirtland, who said that it's, it's Ephraim. Going to the 12 points of the earth. Yeah, there's three in each direction, or four in each, three in each direction going down. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so after this vision closes, here comes Elias. Who is Elias? Elias is going to come, and notice he's not necessarily using the word key, and I find this fascinating. Traditionally, we think about these as each we brought a key. There might have been a key here, but that's not the term that's being used. After this, Moses comes. Now they're, now they're charged with gathering Israel. Here comes Elias. Elias appeared and committed the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. Whoa. What is that? Now, let me ask, and this is this is a good way, and this may be a good time to, to stop into this. Weren't they already gathering Israel? Moses shows up April 3rd, 1836. Here's the keys to gathering Israel. Haven't they already been doing that? They were doing that without the keys? These are the scenic. Who's got the scenic keys? Elijah. Elijah does. Who's it, who, what, what is the job of an Elias? He's a forerunner. He's a forerunner. And there, there's a lot of belief out there that, that the dispensation of the fullness of times, because notice. 14, Elijah's going to say the time has fully come. And here comes this dispensation of Abraham. That the period of time from the first vision to April 3rd, April 3rd, 1836, was kind of an Elias period of time. The church was preparing. It was learning. It was growing. They were doing the best they could. And now comes April 3rd, 1836, and what probably begins on this day? The dispensation of the fullness of times, and one of the names that we might call the dispensation of the fullness of times is the dispensation of gospel of Abraham. Because after this point, what becomes the most important thing in Joseph's mind from April 3rd, 1836 on forward? Temple work. 
Now, he's going to be running from his life from the Curtin Safety Society, and he's going to be off in Far West, and then he's going to be in Liberty Jail, and then he's going to be then, you know, back to uh, Nauvoo, or, and then it's commerce, and then they're going to go up to Washington, D.C., and try and beat the case, and they're going to be lost in Missouri. And, I mean, he's busy, but settle him down in Nauvoo, and what's the first thing out of his mouth when the dust finally settles in Nauvoo? Baptism for the dead, build the temple, get it going, because the, this dispensation is the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham, the fullness of times, and where do we do that? In the temple. Because this is where all the blessings and things come together to seal families together, to prepare them for the eternities. And it came from this man, Elias. And by the way, we have no idea who Elias was. Any speculation? We know that he was a prophet probably during the time of Abraham. There's another case where there's an Elias seen as Noah. Yeah. But, but if you look at the entire breadth of what everybody else has said, we really it's any idea exactly who he is is, is speculation. Is it just a title given to a person? It is a title. <coughs> so it could be a number of people. Do, do you know what? Elijah was a title. In, most likely, if you look at his name, he probably was not born Elijah. He's probably born something else. But Elijah means God with us, like what he did with the priests of Baal. So Elijah was probably uh, a title. Joseph Smith was an Elias. Mo Noah was a, an Elias. John the Baptist was an Elias in the spirit of an Elias. It's a forerunner. It's a preparer. Did you really say he's running from the Curtin Safety Society? He had to run out of town. They ran him out of town after the Curtin Safety Society. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. You just thought running from the Safety Society would be weird. I know. It's, it's a real, it's literally ironic. There was no safety in, in, in the Safety Society. Yeah. The bank that Yeah. Is it freezing? Somebody uh, hit the temperature on that. It's not working? Hit it on the, hit to the red. Okay. It does feel like there's a kind of a cool breeze. The rushing, mighty air conditioning. Okay, we got 20 minutes. Hang in there. Okay. Uh, so here comes Elias, the dispensation of the gospel of Abraham. And by the way, I wanted, uh, I wanted to just point this out. Uh, we talked about, the, a couple of weeks ago, the, the statement by Truman, but the true Madsen quoting Huey Brown. And, and, and Brother Madsen saying to Brother Brown, why would the Lord require Abraham to sacrifice his son? And we get caught up in saying, well, it's because he had to, he had to be Proven to who? Who did Abraham have to prove himself? Himself. Because because the Lord knew who he was in the pre-existence. He knew Abraham. He knew his heart. Abraham just didn't know that yet. But that's what we're all doing. Yeah. Look at look at Abraham two two two. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the word of the Lord. I know who Abraham is. 
This gospel of Abraham, committed by Elias to Joseph Smith, who, whose keys and this dispensation that we now live in has trickled down to us. So who are we? We are Abrahams. You are a Moses. Your job is to lead people out of bondage. You are an Abraham. He knows you. He knows who you are and what you're capable of. So if you were teaching um, teenagers yeah. about the plan of salvation, would you explain that earth life is to prove to us that what, God already knows. what God already knows? <coughs> yeah. I think that's a perfect way to say it. He knows what you're capable of. He knows the, th he knows the things you're going to do on your mission. He knows how He's going to direct you and He knows how you're going to grow. But you don't know it yet until you actually go through that process. I just think that's perfect. Anyway, all right. Yeah. I think that Abraham is 2 2. I think it's 1 2. Is it 1 2? 2 2. Now, the Nahor thing and the daughter of Haran, that just doesn't quite work, does it? It's probably one, two. Thank you. And that doesn't work either? Oh, man, am I messed up. Uh, hold on here. Uh, no, it's not there. It is, it's somewhere in the book of Hinckley, right. <laughs> No, it's not there. If anybody can find it, let us know where that is. <laughs> so it's what I get for trying to do it on the plane. Is there a 19? Is it, is it Abraham 2.18? <laughs> Trust me, it's out there. <laughs> Somebody knows, let us know. I need to change that. That's funny. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, now he's had Moses. Now he's had Elias. And then finally, here it comes. Here comes Elijah. After this vision had closed, another great and glorious vision burst across, across the centers. It's a vision. For Elijah the prophet who was taken into heaven without tasting death, stood before us and said, The time has fully come. Okay? Now, let me just stop here for a second. Um, has, do we have anywhere in the scriptures where Moses and Elias have shown up to anybody else working together? And then in this case, it was Elijah. Mount of Transfiguration. And they're going to show up on the Mount of Transfiguration to do what? Bring the keys to, to the Apostle. To Peter, James, and John. Joseph Fielding Smith says this is where they got their endowment. So they get the keys. They have Moses and Elijah that give them their keys. They prove that they're worthy of this. It's another reason why I believe that Peter never denied the Savior. Because he'd already had his endowment. He knew. You've been educated. This isn't a weak-willed 
silly guy that's going to deny the Savior, unless he's commanded. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, here's Moses and Elijah. It says Elias in the New Testament, but it's Elijah. Come together, and they're going to bring the keys to Peter, James, and John. So do Peter, James, and John have the keys for Moses and Elijah? They did. Why, 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 why then, when Joseph and Oliver running through the woods in the middle of the night, trying to escape mobbers, and they're exhausted, and he says, and they were, and Oliver couldn't go on, and then uh, they're resting in the middle of the night on the banks of the Susquehanna. Peter, James, and John appear and give to them the Melchizedek priesthood. Did Peter, James, and John at that moment hold the keys from they received from Moses and Elijah? Certainly they did. They still had them. They didn't lose them. Could they have given them to Joseph and Oliver on the spot? Sure they could. Why didn't they? It was Elijah's job. Why? In other words, at the beginning of this, here's the Savior. Couldn't the Savior have given the keys of the gathering of Israel? And all the, the Savior has those keys. They're His. Could it have been because Elijah never died? Well, Elijah never died so he specifically so he could do this. Sure, but but why didn't he just? Why didn't they just give, get them from Peter, James, and John? Okay, that's, that's a possibility. Maybe the temple wasn't ready, but they could have they could have gotten the keys and just not exercised them yet. Well, it's just the way the church is run now. The keys are there, and people have the keys. But if you have the authority to use those keys. Right. What's the principle here that we need to keep in mind? The principle of delegation and stewardship. That the Lord delegates responsibilities that, are, that give you a specific job. In the war, does the bishop hold all the keys? Yeah, yeah. Could he teach primary? Uh, could, could he teach young men? Could he, uh, could he teach Relief Society? Yeah. How come he doesn't? He does sometimes. Sometimes he may step in. But, in the, but the, the way the kingdom runs is that we run on delegation and stewardship. Now, I know because I hear in my office and other places, people will say, I don't know why they called me to that. So-and-so could do a much better job. Okay. But it called you. They might be able to do a better job, but it's your calling. It's your job. And it's not to be delegated to anybody else. It's your calling. And, and Elijah had a calling. And he has a responsibility. I think Moroni had a calling. He's had the stewardship over the plates. That's his job. And he wasn't going to be delegated. I heard it said that the Lord doesn't choose the qualified. He qualifies the chosen. Yeah. And he chose, I've cho you haven't chosen me. But I've chosen you and ordained you and given you responsibilities and it's not your job to delegate. 
I remember the day as a as a young bishop. Okay, it's like you get set apart. You sit down. Look, you look at the handbook. You start looking through it. It's like, okay, what's my job? What's my counselor's job? My job, counselor's job. And I can't count how many times in the in the uh, handbook it said, and this responsibility can't be delegated to anybody else. <laughs> this is mine, you know. And even and even a, a wonderful state president saying saying to me, uh, I will help give you guidance and counsel on the checks that you're going to write, but you're the judge in Israel. Yes. He has delegated that to us. So you hold responsibilities that are yours and yours alone. Because it's your stewardship. And he's delegated them to you to carry them out. And you can't hand them off. It's yours. Until, until he releases you from it. Okay? Alright. Is that cool? Could you move a little bit down so you can see that scripture you put up that was wrong? <laughs> yeah. Seen that Abraham? Okay. Anybody find it yet? <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you'll if you'll hit the Google and thumb them and just Genesis put Genesis chapter eighteen, verse eighteen and nineteen. <laughs> is it that far off? <laughs> is it the one that was down there? Yeah. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. I'll they be shall good. keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he had spoken of. Okay. That looks right, doesn't it? Genesis 18, 18 and 19. Thank you. <laughs> oh, man. It's nice to even be in the right ballpark would be really helpful. I'm not even in the right book. Isn't there a scripture that says he's chosen us out of the furnace of affliction? Yeah. Yeah, that would be another good one with it as well. Okay. Ooh, we got about seven minutes. Okay. So here comes Elijah. The time has fully come, uh, which was spoken by the mouth of Malachi, testifying that he should be sent before the great, great and dreadful, dreadful day of the Lord. Now, Joseph has heard this scripture before, right? <coughs> of all places, he heard it when, as, as a boy, he's 14. He sees the vision of the father and the son. The vision closes. Now he spends his next three years doing a lot of menial jobs, digging wells, trying to make money for the family. He's a great job boss. But he does have this tendency, we think, that if the guys were doing what they were supposed to do, that he was pretty quick with his fists. He could get guys to do things. Uh, Josiah Stoll said he, and even Emma Emma Hale's dad said he could get guys to do things that nobody else could. Okay? And we think he was pretty physical. So there are times it's like, okay, I punched that guy out and I'm supposed to be a prophet. Am I still worthy? So at 17, now he's going to pray after everybody else has gone to bed. I just want to know that I'm worthy still. I've been doing things that maybe are the character of the prophet. Here comes the vision. Here's Moroni. Here are the plagues. And then he starts quoting scriptures, right? And of all the things he would quote. Back to DNC 2. 
Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood. Didn't they not reveal the priesthood? I will reveal the fullness of the priesthood. I will help you know of everything that the priesthood is really capable of doing. I will reveal it unto you. They got the priesthood in 1829. But Elijah would come and reveal the fullness of the priesthood in 1836. Does that make sense? I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, he's going to use an interesting phrase, set of phrases here. I want you to listen closely because this is the only time it's quoted this way. Even in the inspired version, it isn't quoted this way. And only here. And he shall do what? Plant. In fact, let me put it here. Oh, that was a good one. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. Now, the more I've pondered on this, the more powerful this verse becomes. This is uh, DNC 2. But these are the wor- this is what was quoted to Joseph Smith that night when Moroni came to tell him about the Book of Mormon. And you'd wonder, what's he doing talking about Elijah while he's trying to show him the Book of Mormon? What does that have to do? Why this? Well, the very specific reason why it is. He shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. Okay, now, let's just define real quick. Who are the fathers? There are those fathers. And those fathers. There were promises made to them that the gospel would be preached. What other fathers? Are all following, especially and including our fathers. Yes. Our forefathers. And what and so what children? Us. And what's planted in us? Promises made to them, right? What promises were made to them? That we will find them. And we will do their work. You will be born earlier, but I promise you that the gospel will be made available to you. I promise you that. And I will place that promise in the hearts of the children that are capable of doing it. By virtue of the Book of Mormon that leads them into the, the Gospel, which then leads them into the, all, everything that comes with that, and ultimately to the Temple, to do the work that they can have every blessing that their children will have. I will plant in your heart. You really you have what's planted in your heart. Think about Alma 32, okay? You're planting in the seed. So you've got a little seed there. And what's going to happen? If you nourish it a little bit, 
and then it starts to grow, then what do you do? Doesn't your heart start to turn to them? And we've talked about before, what happens when them start to turn towards you? And they're on the other side and they're connect and they get you're just getting it. This might be my opportunity to finally, after all these years, get the gospel. And so we've talked about it before. What happens on the other side? When they start getting closer and closer and closer to you, and they're turning. <laughs> what are you feeling? Pressure. <laughs> the rushing mighty wind. You'll feel the pressure. What else are you going to feel? A need. And what else? Guilt. And what else? Love for people. Love. And anxiety. And an urgency. And a desire. What did we just describe? The spirit of Elijah. It's just there. There's no special, there's no additional spirit. It's them on the other side. Their love, their urgency, their excitement, all of that stuff, and then their hearts turning to you. And what happens when that happens? Your seed starts to grow. And if you'll nourish it, if you'll move, and you'll respond to it, it grows into a tree of life and provides fruit for them. Yeah. I find it interesting that one of Jesus Christ's name in the New Testament is the Word. It is the word. So the word that gets planted in our heart is actually Jesus Christ. And his love for yes. you and his love for them. Does that make sense? That's why I think this is powerful. That's what Elijah came to do to reveal what the priesthood could do. Because now let's say that I really, really love them. I'm filled with the roots phenomenon or something like that. And I, I really love my ancestors. But now what? Now I have the ability to do their work. Isn't that great? That's what that is. So let me just finish with this. And this is this was uh, kind of the gist of what I what I spoke of on Saturday morning in Colorado. I said to them, "Are you are you wanting to get answered? Are there answers to prayers that you need to get, and unanswered questions in your heart that you've been wanting to figure out what to do about something? Do your family history. Do you need? Are you feeling disconnected from the spirit? Do your family." You need to, husband lost his job, you need to make a change, you're not quite sure what, how to handle your kids, do your families. You will turn to them, they'll turn to you, and as Orson F. Whitney said, you'll receive help, not just in this work, family history, but in all aspects of your life, by virtue of them being on the other side, their love, their guidance, their counsel, they know us better than we know ourselves. Do your families. And that seed will I want to share a nephew of ours went through a terrible divorce and afterwards he did family history. And he found a wonderful convert by two children. And he's very happy. Wow. You just never know where it comes from then. I bear you my testimony. This is the moment, April 30, 1836, the, the gospel. The dispensation of the fullness of time, the gospel of Abraham, began. And from that moment on, it was all about saving ourselves and our kindred death. 
And you just watch the progression of the church from this moment on. That was the idea. Very my testimony that the Lord intends us to glory in this and know what this was about. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name.